Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasatavara so this today is a very special day they end of the Vasa, the Panta, and this morning the community took their, gave their uh, Pavarana, which is way of chanting at the end of Panta. It's Sunday. And it's a full moon of October, so next month, Halloween's only the day after tomorrow. And uh, life goes on endlessly with events, calendars. People are beginning to give me calendars for the next year. So time is, is what we believe in. We believe in time and the changes. This is called autumn. For, in America, we call it the fall because all the leaves are falling off the trees. And so just noticing the way it is for us in terms of how we identify with time so strongly, right? This morning it shifted from British summertime to Greenwich Mean Time. And so, they had to reset the clocks in line with these traditions of what we call time, hours, minutes, seconds, years, months, on and on like that. So, because we actually believe in time as our reality. And so the reflective ability to reflect on the way it is. Is time ultimate reality? Is it, is it, uh, where does, you know, where does it come from? Who creates months and years? Why do we call this month October? And then the day of tomorrow, Halloween, and the end of the Pansa. You know, so these are traditions that we've grown up with. We've been brought into the world at a certain time, and then we're influenced, conditioned by the beliefs of that period. So what what is the reality of time? In terms of Dhamma, it's the timeless. So timelessness, what 
is that, you know, when you try to imagine timelessness, you can't do it. A colleague, a dhamma, if he chanted every morning, every evening, during the morning, evening pujas, santidiko, akaliko, timeless. So reflecting on this, what is timelessness? What is a kalika dhamma? If I'm taking refuge in something that's timeless, what am I doing? Is it, and this, of course, is a tradition that we're very much adopted Many of us in our adult life, for those who were born in Buddhist countries as part of your culture. So this word Dhamma is, is also a, an exotic word for most of us, coming from the Pali Sanskrit tradition of ancient India, and we take it into the English language, I take refuge in Dhamma. What are we taking refuge in? And since Dhamma is timeless, what, what, can you imagine timelessness? Try, try to imagine timelessness. And we have the word because in language we can just negate something like time and no time or timeless. Let's try to form an image of timelessness, a kalika dhamma. And your mind, my mind at least, when I do that, it goes blank. There's no image possible. So this is reflecting on the way it is, the way the human mind is for all of us. We take refuge in something we can't imagine, and yet we're quite serious when we, when the, somebody or takes the refuge, the five precepts, the eight precepts, the samanera, the siladhara, the bhikkhu, we all take refuge in the dhamma. Which is timeless. And so what I'm doing right now is reflecting on that. I'm not trying to define it because I can't. But I can reflect on the, just the word and how it influences my mind in the present moment. When I think of the, just the, the English word timeless, I, you know, I know it's a word with time and timelessness, common English words, a kalikadama, the Pali, explanation and so just noticing the mind can't imagine timelessness but why can't it why can't we why can't you imagine you can imagine Buddha you have Buddha Rupas the one behind me very big golden Rupa you can when I say take refuge in Buddha you can take refuge in the Buddha behind me or take refuge in the memory or the, tra the tradition of Theravada or Mahayana Buddhism in uh, revering the prophet of 2,565 years ago in India, the Gautama the Buddha, we can take refuge in, 
in, in, in what we think is his memory or his spirit, is it still existent? Is the Gautama the Buddha after he passed away, physically passed away, is his spirit still operating to this present day through this form? We can imagine that. We can create images of Buddha's soul or consciousness into the present moment. We can imagine, make images of almost anything. And that's what so much of the media does. It creates images of right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil. And we're influenced by these terms without reflecting on them. We have our cultural biases, our religious biases, our generational biases, gender biases that affect how we feel or emotionally respond when we hear the word Buddha or the word God or take refuge in Buddha and then take refuge in Dhamma, what does your mind do? Then there's refuge in Sangha. Well, Sangha is, there's a Bhikkhu Sangha, the Siladhara Sangha, there's uh, lay sanghas, there's meditation sanghas, it means the community, or the Amravati Sangha. This morning, the Pavarana was the Amravati Sangha as a whole. So Sangha is you and I. It's why, you know, it's living human beings practicing so one who practices in the right way, in the proper way, and so forth. But what is that? What's the proper way to practice? You know, so what we understand that there's a right way and a wrong way to practice, a proper way to practice, and then there has to be an improper way to practice. So we form opinions, like in uh, tantric, teachings and yoga, and we think that's, if we're very attached to our view of what's proper, then tantric forms of practice can seem improper. So proper and improper are words that are created by human beings about conditions, about phenomena. And we get lost in these words and these positions we take. And we form strong views, like we were the Thai forest tradition. And then that we create that a sense that's proper. That's the proper Buddhist tradition, the proper interpretation of Buddhist teachings. It practices the Vinaya, keeps the precepts properly, we practice in the proper way, and we can create a whole sense of being very proper, and that very sense of being proper creates the sense of anyone who doesn't do it like we do as improper. So we, the language is very divisive conditioning. Just think of what, in English, how you can you know, how the, all problems whether in the present day, 
the Israeli-Palestinian problem, it's because uh, each side believes they're right. They see the other side as enemies in Ukraine and Russia. And it goes on and on in, in, in human relationships, in marriages, about who's right and who's wrong and who's proper, who's improper. Politics is a, is a breeding ground for forming strong views and opinions about what's proper and what's improper, what is the rule of law and what isn't, and who respects the Constitution more, the right or the left. And it goes on endlessly, just in the media, listening to the media, the endless discussions about being proper or the true American, uh, keeping true, true to the American ideal, and who isn't? And what is it all about when it comes down to the reality of here and now? It's forming, taking sides, forming, attaching to views, concepts, attaching blindly to opinions, to identities, But the Dhamma is timeless. So can you, is timelessness proper or improper? And it doesn't apply. Akalika Dhamma, is it proper? We take refuge in it, it must be proper because we wouldn't want to take refuge in something that's improper. But when you try to use words like proper and improper with timelessness, it, can't, it doesn't make sense. Is timelessness proper? Or is it just, you can't imagine it, it's not an imagination. It's a word, a calico or timeless, which we can understand the word, but we don't know actually what it means. So this, state of not knowing. Begin to treasure that, doubt, not knowing. The silence where you don't know anything, beginning to recognize here and now, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma for yourself, and not just recite it in a traditional form, in morning and evening pujas. And we form opinions about tradition, like modern life is about to hell with traditions. You know, I'm going to live my life as I want to. Uh, I'm not going to become a slave to any tradition. Uh, and it's very, very kind of self-centered view of I have a right to know what my body needs and my, my individual rights and my needs and I know what's proper for me even if it's improper for you and I'm going to live my life according to what I think and so we create a, a sense of our refuge in our self-views and our ego becomes what we take refuge in. But the ego is, is uh, can be anything, it's changing. 
You know, you're not the same personality from one moment to the next. When you observe, when you reflect, you think you are, you think, you believe you're the same person when you're asleep, when you're awake, when you're happy, when you're miserable, because you think I'm miserable or I'm happy or I'm awake. I slept well last night or I didn't sleep well last night. So the whole cultural conditioning social conditioning, conventional conditioning. It can be proper or improper. So, for example, I was brought up in a Christian tradition. My parents were very proper Christians, very moral, very kind, good people. <clears throat> they were very proper and uh, so my conditioning was through Christian piety and properness. But so much of the Christian conditioning was, was based on illusions that you couldn't sustain. You know, through beliefs that you were told is proper and not believing in God was improper. So you, what does this do to your mind as a child when you're conditioned to believe that doubting the existence of God is improper and it creates fear? Because this, this proper and improper are very two opposites. And innocent children usually want to be proper but they don't know how, so you, you tell them what a good boy is, what a good girl is, and how to behave properly at school and with your parents, with your grandparents. So this is how we're brought up, through reward and punishment, <clears throat> through being conditioned by conventions, traditions. So then, the tanga, the sangha, is a convention, it's a tradition. The Thai forest sangha is a, is a convention, it's tradition. The vinaya <clears throat> that we respect is, is tradition. Is it proper or improper? You know, so when you train with Vinaya, it's about action and speech. It's not about doubting or, or mental states. It's about right action and right livelihood, right action, right speech, right livelihood. So notice that this is, it's not about belief. You, you know, you, even though in the tradition you take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and then you ask to be received into the Sangha, the, the, take the precepts, the five precepts, the, the eight or ten or 227, you ask for these precepts and so they're not dogmatic precepts. 
they're not about belief, but about good behavior, how to respect each other, how to live one's life that will lead to enlightenment, to awakening of ultimate reality or timelessness, a kalikadama. So as I've reflected on many times, uh, there's a Dhamma and then the Vinaya. <clears throat> and I remember in my early years in Thailand, there were Western monks who questioned the value of Vinaya, that is just conditioning and was appropriate for ancient Indian society, conditions that existed at that time, the time of the Gautama the Buddha, and, and some of the precepts are useful, some aren't, and, and then you get all these doubters and who or form their own sense of Vinaya. But then they can't really live with those who keep the Vinaya properly. So they, they set themselves apart. So is the Vinaya that we keep, is do we hold it as we're proper and they're not? They're egotistical, opinionated narcissists. We can, we can put people down with words like that. But then we reflect on, you know, just training yourself with the traditional Thai forest tradition, the way Lumpur Cha taught Vinaya. And I've heard monks criticize Ajahn Chah's Vinaya. But then this was what I was trained with, with the way Lumpur Cha taught and kept the Vinaya himself. So, so that's, I found that very helpful, Lumpur Cha's approach to Vinaya. Uh, so there is a sense of trust in the teacher, in Ajahn Shah, that I could conform to the way that uh, he taught the Vinaya at Wat Pong. And I knew what I was doing because before that I was uh, kind of independent hedonists, given up Christianity and, and uh, being a West Coast American, you know, the modern of the early 60s and so forth, all this kind of freedom and drug addiction and alcohol and just enjoy life and try to live it up and it doesn't matter, there's no right or wrong, good or bad, just Enjoy, and that can be very attractive when you're young because there's no hold barred, and you're kind of encouraged to just indulge in sensual behavior. But then, reflecting on indulging in sensual sensual behavior, I found it it brought all kinds of self doubts and self. Dis, uh, disparagements that just following desires because some of them were improper just following desires and 
trying to be happy through sensory indulgence didn't lead to calm or peace or happiness, just seemed to end up in confusion and depression. So when I ordained as a bhikkhu, I deliberately wanted to train, to learn how to surrender to a form that was very traditional, very ancient, traditional Theravada and Vinaya, as taught by Lung Po Chayat Wat Pong. It was a deliberate choice. I wanted, I knew I needed to, to learn to obey, to bow my head to somebody else, to, to just surrender to forms that were only about speech and action. Because in sila, or morality, as de determined by in Buddhism, is about action and speech. Where in my Christian background, it was about thoughts. Having bad thoughts was a sin. Having doubts was a sin. <clears throat> and I found that the Buddhist approach where it's about just action and speech. I can be responsible for what, how would I do with my body and what I say. I'm willing to take on that responsibility. But about thoughts, can you be really responsible for all your thinking habits? You know, you can, what, as, a, as an ego, you feel guilt, guilt a lot of the time about what passes through your mind because it's, it's improper or, not, or crude or bad or stupid or nonsensical. So I found that it was a kind of wonderful relief to realize that sila was manageable. It wasn't about trying to be perfect in every possible way you can imagine or idealize but in being able to take responsibility for how, what I do with my body and what I say with my speech, I'm willing to at least try, and then I recognize that the Vinaya <clears throat> was only about that, only about speech and action. So I gladly conformed to the strict rules, the precepts, as they were taught to me through the monks, through Ajahn Chah. And that made it possible to live with other monks because in personal relationships, like when I got to know some of the monks, you know, I liked some, didn't like others. And even though on an ideal level I should like everybody and love everybody equally, as experience, I liked some and didn't like others. I was critical of other monks. If they didn't conform to my ideal of what's proper, then I would find fault with them. So, <clears throat> But then in terms of action and speech allowed me to live with, with people I didn't like very much 
because I could, I tried to develop proper speech in relationship to them and right action as, as uh, in the precepts of the Vinaya. And it was good practice because a lot of my views and opinions about other monks were just arrogant views on my part. I became aware of how arrogant I could be as an ego through believing my opinions about others and operating from them. You know, my action and speech would follow according to what I was clinging to. So this is like reflecting on the way it is. As I became aware of arrogance as I, I, I thought I wasn't arrogant as I believed I was a tolerant person. But as I began to reflect on some of my views and reactions to others, I saw it, was quite, it could be quite arrogant. Whether I spoke on it or acted on it was not the case. I was good at pretending and controlling myself through just willfulness. But just trying to be perfect, conform to uh, virtuous ideals through willpower leads to depression. Because we're trying to, we're trying to delude ourselves endlessly by trying to imagine perfection is about being perfectly good all the time, perfectly loving, full of metta and compassion every moment of the day and night, spreading the vihara, Prama Viharas uh, to all sentient beings everywhere. And that's uh, the ideal of perfection. But can we actually do that in, in terms of experience, daily life experience in a sangha, in a community, in a family, in a marriage, in any relationship? So there's so much in, information about relationships, how to relate to each other and, and how to be open and honest and, and uh, we, you know, it's all good advice. But even at the best, it doesn't lead to wisdom until we reflect on, on how what our own clinging habits to desires, desires to be perfect, desires to destroy the evil forces, sensual desires. The sense realm is, is what we're experiencing all the time through these forms, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, through the, through the mind, through the brain. We're, we're just looking at my garden this morning from my bedroom window and the previous day, the community had come and cleaned up everything, cut the grass, and all the leaves were raked away. And then when I woke up this morning, it was all covered in leaves. And I saw how I preferred the view where the grass is completely free of leaves, and the patio doesn't have any leaves, and all the plants are in 
good order and well taken care of, how that was my, my personal preference. But that's all it is, it's not ultimate reality. The reality is that it's autumn now. It's the fall when the leaves fall and it's like this. And just by reflecting on that, I began to appreciate the leaves on the grass and the patio, rather than just see that you know, see it from one perspective of view that I was clinging to about everything cleaned away and proper. So this tradition of <clears throat> Theravada tradition, Thai forest tradition, you know, it it's encourages this kind of reflectiveness. Lung Po Chan never told me I had to love everybody or, or uh, you know, just uh, try to, I had to believe in Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha. And he wasn't forcing Buddhist metaphysics onto me. And his main teaching was the Four Noble Truths. So that teaching approaches the whole human condition very wisely by using suffering, dukkha, as a noble truth. Because uh, as I was reflecting that I tended to create, to believe that suffering was created from outside. Somebody makes me suffer, it was from my past, from uh, political system, from religious conditioning, it was somebody causing me pain. There was always this sense of blaming, seeking the cause of suffering as something external. Why should I suffer? Who's to blame for my suffering? And that's a very good question to ask yourself. Is suffering some kind of personal infliction, or is it just the nature of life, of experience through these forms? From my insight over these years, it's the forms in the, this, this sensory form, the human body, that identifying with it is suffering. And we think if, I, if everybody was fair and just and proper and moral and kind and full of metta, then I wouldn't suffer. But that's, that's asking for the impossible because the forms that we identify with are not ideal forms. Your body is not what you are. It's not an ideal form because it, it's, it, it grows up, gets old, gets sick, and dies. So the ideal human form is represented in advertisements and so forth is when you're young, a certain age, or like a baby. But, you know, they don't put pictures of old men and old women all wrinkled up and crippled to advertise new models of cars, They're usually beautiful young women, because that's attractive. Old age is not attractive. 
It's like this. And when we see it the way it is, then we don't suffer from it. But if we want to be attractive when we're 89 years old, it's going to be asking the impossible for the community or from oneself. Because old age is like this. The body is old. It's like the leaves falling off the trees. They're turning brown. So reflecting on experience, experience is about time, about forms, about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. We experience things as we're conditioned to, as we've been conditioned by fate, by the family, by the culture, by the generation, by the, the form of your body. But then ask yourself, are you, are you really the body? You know, is this really what you are? Male or female, is this really what you want to identify with? Or with sexual tendencies, the strong views about sexuality that are available now, do you really want to identify with sexual preferences? Is that what you are? Or race? Or nationality? These are all illusions that we create and can believe in. But then in reflective meditation or bhavana or right meditation, proper meditation, is um, we're breaking down these, these illusions we, we've been trained to believe in and grasp and hold to. What's happening in Israel and Gaza, you know, people are so convinced that they are what they identify with, Jews or Muslims or Hamas or you know, it's, uh, these are views that we attach to and will fight and die for. But uh, just ask yourself, is this what you really are? And when you reflect like this, you begin to see the clinging, the way you've been conditioned to believe what's right and then what's wrong. So if your, your view of what's right conflicts with somebody else's that isn't in line with your view, then they're wrong and they're the enemy. So we create enemies, we create friends who agree with us, and we want to live in a community of friends where everybody's agreeable. So in the community here at, at Amaravati, we agreed to live under the same precepts. The 227 rules or the, the 10 precepts or the eight precepts. Lay people the five precepts. This agreement on action and speech. 
But then in terms of reflecting on the way it is, our reaction to uh, the experiences we have in daily life with each other, through the tradition, you know, how uh, the, now we're preparing for the winter's retreat. What does that perception create in your mind, winter's retreat, when it's still autumn, the leaves are falling, and we're thinking of the winter's retreat. How, do, how does that affect you? And just be the witness of it, rather than seeing your view is right or wrong. So it's learning to reflect on, on experience, not be a slave to experience, to the habits, to the conditioning, to the ego, to the cultural biases, religious biases. We're not any of these. We're, we're liberating ourselves from these, these limitations. And through that grasping of those limitations, blindly out of ignorance, the first noble truth is the result, suffering. And it's to be understood not by blaming it on anybody, but by understanding experience through the form is the experience of suffering. They have, it's, sometimes we have very happy lives, we have good relationships, we have power, we have wealth, we have uh, nice pets, we have a beautiful car, and we have uh, security, and all that, and still, you have to die. You have to get old and die. No matter how powerful you might be in the moment, or how wealthy you are, or how happy your situation is in the present, because these conditions are subject to other conditions which are beyond our control. So samsara is a realm of suffering, and it, trying to pretend it, you should not suffer in it is, is, uh, is, a, is a deception that we might be grasping. But suffering is to be understood, and is suffering what your true nature is? Or in the first noble truth, you understand it, you reflect on it, it this feeling of fear, of anxiety, of worry, of self-consciousness, these opinions I believe in, why I have strong emotions about certain subjects, why I get angry over somebody else's views about what's right and proper. And we reflect on, because these are experiences we have, we can't help them. We can't be Buddha Rupas because we're the form that we identify with this is about eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, a brain, a thinking mind. 
And then the weight of Rapawana is to reflect on this experience that we, we have in this form of the human body. And we have this gift as human beings to ref be able to reflect on it. We're not just helpless victims of conditioning. We're not just limited by uh, the form of our, you know, because like an animal world is very much limited by its form, by its species. But we're still an animal, we have an animal form, but we have what we call the Buddha mind, or the ability to reflect on experience, not to judge it, but to recognize timelessness behind all the experiences we have through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So as you, proper meditation or bhavana is abiding in the silence behind the noise, behind the changing conditions that's here and now, apparent here and now. And as you trust in that refuge of Dhamma, then the silence becomes your refuge. Because it doesn't change. It's always here and now, no matter what you're experiencing through your form, through your body and senses. So all these years training in uh, this form and reflecting, this silence becomes, is my refuge. So I cannot still reflect on, on the you know on what the vipaka kama experienced through the, through this body and mind. I still have memories of the past and and emotions, but instead of trying to judge them or condemn them or get rid of them or believe in them, I'm a witness to the vipaka kama that that I experience while living in this, this old body. So ultimately, your true nature is peace, is Dhamma. And then this way to realize that is through awareness. Aparuta de sangamatasatawa, the gate to the deathless, is open. Deathlessness, timelessness. You can't, they have no image. But the gate to that is open. What is that? Trusting in awareness, in conscious reflection on the changing conditions that we experience through the body and senses. And then we realize anatta, no self, no personal identity anymore. So when people ask me about becoming a stream enterer or an arahant, I point out, you, you know, when you reflect, you, as a person, you can't ever attain anything. As long as you believe you're 
the body and your emotions and thoughts, you know, there's no stream entry possible. So trying to perfect yourself as a monk or a nun or a lay person is a futile attempt to, you know, coming from a good intentions and ideals. But it's not bhavana, it's not proper meditation or right meditation. It might be good in the sense that it's trying to be kind and generous and, and virtuous and so forth is good. But this is, silence is neither good nor bad. It's where good and bad cease. Good and evils cease in Naroda, in the Third Noble Truth. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon.